This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an active hyphenate as an award-winning actor, writer, and advocate for inclusion. She was a member of the first national North American tour of the Tony Award-winning musical Come From Away. She writes plays and musicals, as well as being the host of the Dramatist Guild podcast, Talk Back. Joining me now is the multi-talented Christine Toy Johnson. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. It's great to see you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And before we get very far into it, I would love you to tell the audience what a dramatist is, because it's a term you and I are familiar with, but I think most people are confused by it. Yeah, I generally like to think of a dramatist as a storyteller for the theater, a writer who creates stories and puts them into words that are meant to be experienced in the theater. So it is folks that write plays and Mm -hmm. musicals, and it is quite different than those that write screenplays or novels. You're a part of the Guild as a member, always looking out and protecting the rights of those folks that are writing stories for the theater. Well, yes, I'm also really honored to have been on the council, which is the elected leadership of of the Guild since 2016 and the treasurer since 2021. Okay. So I do know that you host their podcast as well, which is Mm -hmm. a a place where art and community and inclusion all meet in conversation. How long have you been doing that? Yeah. So we just launched season five in October of 2023. We have done six episodes per season. This season is about expanding the canon in the American theater. And so generally the subject, the themes of each season center how we can make the ecosystem of the American theater more inclusive. And that takes many different ways of looking at it and perspectives. We've shared some guests. So I see that uh, Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty and Cheryl Coons and Sarah Rule and so forth. So it's been really fun for me to sort of find out a little bit more about folks. And I know that you made your mark as an actor in many things, but are writing quite a bit now. Were you writing all along while you were acting or did you suddenly, did a project come up or when you wrote your first play, how far into your career were you? Yeah, without giving away my age, because I don't tell anyone that. Uh, You (laughs) look 21 to me. (laughs) Thank you. I actually have been writing uh, plays and screenplays and musicals for over 20 years now. And like many actors of color that I know who have started writing, it was because I wasn't seeing stories about people who look like me in theater, film, and television. 
And so even though I had been working as an actor really my entire adult life, I got my equity card the summer I graduated from high school, and I worked during the summers during college, even though I have been working all this time as an actor, most of my work has been centering around trying to find ways to make the theater world more inclusive. Not just the theater world, but the entertainment industry more inclusive and reflect more of our stories that make up the American landscape. I was reading some of your background and you were able to, in your auditioning, and I would guess because of your talent in, in various areas, being able to sing and act and perform, that being in uh, shows, revivals, and shows like Music Man in Greece were an anomaly for somebody in your ethnicity. The right? opportunities definitely have changed and expanded exponentially since I started out, which is great, and which is something that we a lot, so many of us have been working towards for, for so many years. Back in the day, as we say, um, when I first started out, there was definitely a frequently seen stereotype for young Asian or Asian American women. And that's what I call the May Lee roles. <laughs> and so, for example, I got my union card playing Liat in South Pacific, which I did three different times. Those kinds of roles were the ones that were really available to people who looked like me. But then I very quickly realized that I didn't really fit the stereotype that well because I was taller than a lot of my colleagues. I'm curvier. I, I just didn't really fit the frail, uh, lotus blossom, the submissive kind of person that was often portrayed in the media. I fortunately met the right representation at the right time because I was working with a wonderful woman at the time named Jadine Wong. She's kind of legendary. She was a manager and she managed uh, Asian talent. And she was great in, in the beginning of my career, introducing me to all kinds of people. But then as I was realizing that I wasn't really fitting into these stereotypes and that I really needed to try to strategize in different ways to break out of those molds, I happened to be doing a play here in New York City at the, the Manhattan Punchline, which was this wonderful kind of off-off-Broadway theater back in the 90s. And a, one of my colleagues in the play had her representation come and I met them and sort of the rest is history that I, I met the right people who believed in me and believed believed in trying to help me achieve my vision of breaking out of the stereotypes and playing what used to be called, I don't like to call it this anymore because I think it means not normal, non-traditional casting. I, so that was the, the beginning of a lot of opportunities to, to uh, take on. Right. So it's an interesting moment, especially when we talk about historically where it was, which was that you didn't personally feel like you made the Asian casting style and there weren't roles that were evidently obvious for you. And so it probably did take that different kind of management to believe and understand that, yes, let's run around for these other things. Let's see if she can break through this wall. And I know reading about you playing Maria in West Side Story seems like it was a, a bold piece of casting by somebody. But you must have had the chops to sing and dance, and right? So that was the thing. You were prepared for it if somebody would accept you in the role. Yeah, you know, I think I didn't really see those barriers until I 
this sounds uh, maybe simplistic, but until I really ran up against them. So I grew up in the suburbs of New York City. I was going to see Broadway shows. All I wanted to do was Broadway. I was studying. I was studying, studying, studying without really that many role models to see um, on Broadway. But I just loved it so much that I kept working to be the best that I could be. And mm -hmm. so when the opportunities did come up, you're right, I feel like I was ready. One of the seminal moments in this whole journey for me was when I, I had this wonderful agent and they called me up and said, we have an appointment for you to audition for Julie in Carousel. And at the time, I really was shocked that I was even going to be let into the room. Whereas these days, you know, of course, you know, you, you hope that access is more open and, and people mm -hmm. are more willing to see actors of all different stripes for various roles. And I remember that w when I went into audition and I was still, again, really shocked that they were even going to see me. I remember looking around and feeling a little ashamed because I thought mm. that people might be looking at me like, well, what are you doing here? You know, this isn't the king and I, what are you doing here? Uh, nobody treated me that way, but it was my own sort of inner voices, right? Right, right. And that begins to impact the way you audition because you you have a low confidence moment. Right. And so I I feel very fortunate, too, that I have always been able to take a little bird's eye view on those moments and see a fork in the road. You hmm. can either go down that uh, low confidence road where you might be self-sabotaging yourself because of that. Or you can say, nope, I'm going to choose this road. I'm ready. I'm prepared. I'm going to show up and tell the story. And so that's what I ended up being able to do even at that younger age. And I got the part. <laughs> I was really intent on sharing the, I'm laughing because this is so me, this, this pathological optimism I have. I was very <laughs> intent on sharing the positive effects of that show. And, you know, I used to joke that, you know, I got to do it. Nobody died. It was amazing. You know? And um, that was actually the beginning of finding my advocacy voice when I was able to really speak up about it in public. And I had a early kind of little letter to the editor published in the New York Times about inclusion early on. And unfortunately, I have to tell you that that letter could be published today and it wouldn't need much editing. It's a similar kind of That's sad. Plight. I understand. Yeah. yeah. But but anyway, it was it was the beginning of a lot of my what I consider to be my life's work. It's being intentional about how you're populating your story. We have blended families all over America now, and family can mean and often does mean so much more than just the shared DNA. So, yes. yeah, I think that the more we can focus on the storytelling and what it and being intentional about uh, how we're telling it, that the the better for everybody. And I grew up in a high school where our summer musical was Sound of Music, mm -hmm. and we cast from all over the city. And the most talented singer was Kevin Morrow, who's a terrific African-American actor who played Captain Von Trapp. And while it seemed kind of kooky casting to the – he was absolutely 
the best actor, the best singer, the right guy for the job. And I think for all of us involved from the set all the way to the parents that saw the show, it liberated all of us from caring because you have to do that. You have to offer those things in the right way that open doors. It's I think what's always been important to me is to, to illuminate a conversation about access. Back in the day, the default phrase that people would use when talking about casting would be, well, we just want the best person for the part, which which is okay, fair. However, unless you are seeing a wide variety of people and your access is open, it doesn't really mean anything. Because how do you know the best person for the part is someone that you pre-decided should not even be in the room. Right, right. If you're going through uh, headshots and you don't invite them to audition or, yeah, I understand what you're saying and I agree with that. Yeah. So hopefully we have braver casting directors as well. I think we definitely do. We've come a a long way. Of course, there's still a distance to go, but we have come a very, I like to say we're farther than we've ever been. (laughs) Well, and here's what it's worth shining a light back on is that when you said earlier that you could take the low road of low confidence or you could go in there and and go for it, every time a person auditions as if it's the job, as if they have the job and they're doing it, it does educate casting directors. And you may not be right for this, not because of what you look like, but you're just not a match for that actor they're putting you with, whatever, but they remember great auditions. And I guarantee you, they call you and then something else comes up, they go, you know who we should call? We should call Christine Toy Johnson because I've seen her every time she comes in here, she nails it. So I feel like actors who go to auditions who go, ah, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Like every time you do well in those auditions, you know, there's a pulse on your name. It grows on you. Yeah. Yeah. I always believe in showing up and doing the work. That's what we have to do and and telling the story. I've told young people this often that if you're too intent on trying to please the other person or trying to get the job, you're not focusing on what your real job is in that room, which is telling the story. Yeah. Now you've told a story. Your I think your solo work, which was called A Little More Blue, mm-hmm. was described as a solo play with music. Right. Tell me how that's different than a musical, because I know that there are plays with music and there are musicals. Well, it's actually something that I'm currently working on. I have a performance here in New York in December and and in L.A. in January, and it's a very personal story about my father and myself and how his quest to be an all-American guy has really impacted my life in all these wonderful ways. And it is a play with music because there are five songs that I have written the lyrics to with uh, a frequent collaborator, Bobby Cronin. But it's not a musical because it's not meant to it's, it's not take the journey in a musical way. It, the songs punctuate various dramatic moments, uh, but there are only five songs and instead of in a musical where there would be many more. Right. And it is a solo work. So you're, is it a direct address to the audience in your storytelling? Yes, it is. It's like telling a room full of friends and strangers who might become friends the story. We had one of your other collaborators on, Jason Ma, who mm-hmm. was just a great storyteller and a great musician and a great actor and all of those things, which you know. Yes. I'm not telling you yes, anything. Yes, he's new. wonderful. But the two of you are collaborating on a project called Broken Ground. I know that it, it's something you've been working on for quite a while. Yes. And that it's, it's 
I've been through a development at the O'Neill Theater Conference. Well, what's interesting about Broken Ground is that we were commissioned to write it by Village Theater in Issaquah, Washington in late 2019. So our first deliverable was a year later in, guess what, November 2020, which means we spent a lot of time writing it in isolation on the phone, you know, instead Mm. of in the same room together. And then because of the pandemic shutdown, and then I went back on the road with Come From Away, the development process was a little unusual. We were able to do a big workshop of it on one of my breaks in uh, in 2022. I'm really happy to say that we are going to do another workshop slash presentation, 29 hour reading for people who don't know, that's actually, you literally get 29 hours to work with your director and actors and with the end product being a hopefully fully rehearsed or as much as possible presentation for an audience. We're going to Musical Theater West in Long Beach, California in January. So we're really uh, just so excited to get institutional support from various places and keep not only working on it, but also putting it out into the world because we love the story and love working together. We were lifelong friends. I think, I don't know if he told you this, but we made our Broadway debuts together in the late 80s in a show called Choo Tim by Mitch Lee. I consider him family. It's just really special to get to create something with someone that close. I like it. Well, you mentioned several things I just want to open the door to. And one is you mentioned it being a commissioned work. So people who don't know about that, oftentimes a, a venue or a nonprofit would commission a work where they would uh, advance you something to, to develop a piece of work. That doesn't mean that they own the work. Most people think that that's his, but they, they're paying a fee for the services of the development of the theater, but the rights still go to the writers of the work. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is a very big difference. Speaking of the difference between writing for theater and writing for film and television, in film and television, you're more of a uh, what's called a work for hire. And so they do own the work. Once you write it and you hand it in, they own it. They can do whatever. They can rewrite it. They can hire a new writer. Whereas in the theater, and this is something that the Dramatists Guild was actually founded really fundamentally to fight for, to keep our ownership of our copyright as uh, playwrights, librettists, lyricists, and composers. Yeah. And you also mentioned the readings, the 20-hour readings. I know what's interesting about it is there are very strict rules about the hours, but also, you know, stage reading of a musical, yes, you can stand up and read the material and you can even somewhat block the material and people can sing, but there's rules of no costumes, no props, no sets. There are really specific rules, which you could kind of dance around a little bit. I don't think it serves us to veer away from what the primary purpose to me of a 29 hour reading, which is really difficult in a musical because you have to teach the music to people. And it could it can take 27 hours to teach the music. But the purpose, I think, needs to be more about getting to hear the work out loud, a scene in its entirety. But of course, it's only one part of the development because you haven't involved the other collaborators that you're going to eventually work with, like your designers and staging and all that. But it is also a very valuable tool to get to hear things. And also, hopefully, I know that from the equity side of this picture, it's so that the actors aren't taken completely advantage of. And even though they're not paid very much, 
at all for their time and their efforts, it's really something to express the respect for their talents and skills. Many of those actors, when they're really great, they continue on with the development. This is sort of a, not a pre-audition, because that's not fair to say those words, but it is essentially that they help tell the story. And in talking to folks like Karen Olivo, who we had on this show, you know, she carried through with Lin-Manuel Miranda on the earliest Into the Heights show, all the way to Broadway and so forth. So it is interesting that when they join the team, as many of those early chorus line folks did, those stories kind of become about the journey a little bit. Well, of course, Line did, because it was based on literally their their stories. This business is all about relationships. And so I know that whether it's Jason and I or Bobby and I, or I'm, I'm co- collaborating right now on a new musical that's also a new commission with a composer named Cecilia Lynn and the director Gabe Barry. We know people and we know we want to have people in the room who are not only talented, of course, but who we want to share the space with, mm-hmm. who we can have really positive experiences with and a shared respect and all of that stuff. I do think that, that that happens early on where you say, oh, I want to bring this person into the room with us. They continue on because we have that relationship and we we trust and respect each other. Yeah. One of the funny things when I did a stage reading of uh, Grounded for Life, which was a musical I had, we did it at the York Theater Musical Development. And we were doing it under the reading rules. And one character had to have an eye patch because it a lot of jokes were about his having obstructed view and so forth. But that was kind of considered a costume. How do we get around this? And we didn't didn't discuss it with the actors. The director, choreographer, was very clever on the day of the reading. He didn't say anything up to that. I, only he and I were talking, and he goes, I'm going to figure it out. He brought in a first aid kit right before we went to do the show. And he just put it on the stage management table and and it opened up and said, hey, listen, everybody should know this is here. So the actor who needed the eye patch looked at it and said, oh, do you mind if I use this? So it was elective (laughs) by the actor, but it really (laughs) helped the reading. It really literally was like, oh, these guys' jokes might not work. Yeah. I wish that we could find a different model for developing new work. It really is a challenge. And I... I feel you. I, 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 I empathize with that story. It was cute to me, but it was really a life-saving moment to the humor that I had written for him. In a reading, if you talk about him throwing darts at a dartboard and you describe them all going off to the right by two feet, you kind of know what's happening. Right. But it's another thing to see a guy earnestly trying to throw a dart with one eye, and, you, and then he closes the eye that's not covered, yeah. which means both eyes are closed. But anyway, it was one of those things where it just felt really great that the director was savvy enough to find a way to not break the rule. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love those mm-hmm. kind of little inside stories anyway. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about the extensive touring you did with Come From Away, which was a terrific musical and such a beautiful thing when it came out. And I know that you joined the national tour, the North American national tour. So that meant you went a lot of places. Oh, yes. I did the entire tour. I I started it in August of 2018, and we closed in May of 2023. I did 1,160 performances as Diane. I counted all of these things because as we were wrapping up, I wanted to get a big picture of where we had been. 96 different cities. Amazing. In uh, the United States and Canada. It was really something 
remarkable to be a part of. And talk about a family. You do become a family. And particularly in a show like that where it's an ensemble and it's about people coming together under the worst situation, it must have in some ways developed some lifetime friendships that were just incredible. Oh, sure. And we, we all went through so many life events together. And really also, you know, what's interesting about that show is that it is so much about our better angels coming out when we choose to let them. Compassion, generosity. When we started it, it was at a very fraught political time uh, in 2018. So there were a lot of people who responded to seeing a story where people were good to each other and kind to each other. And then when we came back after the shutdown in September of 2021, a similar yet different response to being back in the room with each other and taking care of each other, that that spirit of generosity really impacted people to be able to to see something that underlined the importance of that. Yeah, I think the human condition is what the arts yeah. is about mm-hmm. oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And talk about inclusion is like if we stop looking at exteriors and if we stop building walls and build bridges, mm-hmm. the notion is the humanity is where it all lies because we can relate to fears and being left out and trying to reconcile with family. And all those things uh, happen to everybody. Right, right. How do we come together and help each other out, right? Yeah. The beauties of what the Dramatist Guild is doing is that it is helping storytellers tell better stories. Mm -hmm. And it's protecting the ownership of that. And oftentimes writers are kind of the last thought of, even though they have to build the foundation to the building. Yes. I think people forget that someone had to write the thing. I am just so grateful for the work that the Guild does to fight the exploitation of writers in the American theater and all the ways that that, um, the Guild is trying to empower us to know our rights and know what, what is possible. The big thing in Broadway and in play development is recoupment that I don't think most people ever hear about. Like a, a patron that buys the ticket doesn't know how critical it is to, to recoup the cost of the production because it takes so much money to get something to Broadway that so many things are a loss from the get-go. Right. There's so many people involved in the putting together of a production and making it run. It's. I think that a lot of people don't they have any idea all of the moving parts that it takes and and the money you're right the money it takes to keep it going there's the expense of developing a thing in a pre-production the writing the set design all of that and then the show opens and when the show opens you've got weekly operating costs advertising and ticket sales and all of those kinds of things so you have to make a a weekly break even to be to make nothing and then the profits after that. So it is the toughest horses to win money on. When people start to put an investment in it, they they have to watch it run. But while it's running, it's also costing money. I've been a Tony voter for many years. And this season, I, I'm on a three-year assignment to be on the nominating committee. I've been going to see everything before the reviews come out, which has been a really different perspective and great. And I'm just the hugest fan of Broadway. I just growing up watching it, dreaming of it. Right. And I still am so amazed whenever I go to see any show and see 
1,200, 1,500 people there, and especially shows that have been running a long time. And New York City really is, I think, back in terms of the tourism, and I'm happy to say that. But it does surprise me. Where are all these people coming from? I'm grateful that they are, but where are they all coming from? And seeing eight shows a week, it's a lot of uh, a lot of people and revenue. and Yeah, it's a big enterprise. And I will say this, Broadway is one of the great American exports. Lots of stuff is being brought into this country, but that is one thing. The folks that do the mechanics of Broadway, the stage craftsmanship, the performance, and, and it is still quite different when they take it on the road. I mean, a show like Come From Away is fairly lean in terms of setting and so forth. But We still had 48 people with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. With the band and, the, of course, the cast and the stage management and the tech crew and coming back, the COVID safety team, you know. So, yeah, it, it takes a lot of people. And we also traveled with a lot of dogs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was fun for us. Were they in the show? The dogs no, they were... were not in the show. Okay. We just we just had an extremely dog and family friendly company. <laughs> I think they just knew that everyone would be happier if they could travel with their families, whether they're fur family or human family. That was really something special. <laughs> Well, on this show, we had set designer Beowulf Barrett, who's an extraordinary set designer oh, yes. and unbelievable. Yes. And he was describing New York, New York, which he won mm. a Tony for, where the amount of space in a Broadway house is so limited. Right. There's no giant wing space or no giant fly space. They actually have to figure out how to store some of this stuff, where the choreography of what happens after it crosses the proscenium and disappears right. and then gets taken up by cables. And, taken, and that all has to happen in the running time while the actors are dodging things and coming through. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's a whole backstage magic show that the audience is unaware of. Yes. I guess I'm really protective when people say, what am I paying $150 for the seat for? Well, there's a lot going on here. And it's expensive to to keep all of these top-level people working on these shows the yes, way they do. Yes. It doesn't make the kind of money that a movie does, but it is quite an experience to have everyone working for you live. There's nothing like it. I mean, I love working on film and television, but it is different. There's nothing like that shared experience, that alchemy in the room that's not going to ever be the same. Even if you're doing the same show over and over again, the combination of people will never be the same. It's very exciting. Yeah. Now, I was listening to your podcast, Talk Back, and I just picked up a couple of episodes. Last night, I heard the story of you taking a tumble down the stairs <laughs> In Stephen Sondheim's New York flat. Yeah. Would you mind sharing that? How, <laughs> what happened and how the, what the result was of that? Yeah, sure. I Well, so this was a, a long time ago. I was doing the first revival of Pacific Overtures, and we were invited to Steve Sondheim's townhouse that he had at the time in Turtle Bay, which was famously one of his neighbors was Catherine Hepburn for a, a long time. I think she might have even complained sometimes about the noise coming out of his apartment because he was playing the piano, obviously, a lot. That might be apocryphal, but that's the story that I always heard. Anyway, we were invited to his house, and it was several stories because it was a townhouse. I remember we were all so kind of giddy being in the presence of his piano and his Tony Awards and 
just his things. You know, I, you look at his pen, pencils on the piano thinking, oh my goodness, what did that pencil write? You know, <laughs> right. and so I was coming down the stairs, the third floor to the second floor to the first floor. And I was going rather quickly, I think because I was just in this sort of joyous mood of being there. I don't know what happened. I slipped from the second floor to the first floor. And I was actually quite lucky because there were all these dance bags, people's bags at the bottom of the stairs that cushioned my a part of my fall. I remember being very terribly bruised after that, but not any kind of big injury. I'm horrified because I'm at Stephen Sondheim's house. I don't want to be drawing attention to myself in this way, but here I am lying at the foot of the stairs. And I opened my eyes and there is Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman. John Weidman, of course, wrote the book. He's still a very good friend of mine. And and I was like, oh, <laughs> looking at them. And and they, it was like they had a comedy routine <laughs> because Steve says, do you need anything? A pair of flats, a drink. And John says, do you need a lawyer? And it's funny because he was a lawyer. At, that's how he originally trained. So I thought, no, I'm good. I'm fine. The funny postscript to this story is that I am very good friends now with uh, with the wonderful writer Lisa Crone, and I was telling her this story one day, and she said, "Wait a minute, I was there. I saw that happen. I swear I didn't push you." <laughs> oh, and funny. so just a coincidence, she happened to be. It was very early in her time in New York City. She was ushering at that theater a lot. She had friends who were working, I think, follow spot that invited her to come along to the party. And she oh, happened funny. to be there and remembered it. So she didn't know you at the time, but she knew a woman fell down yes, the stairs. Yes, correct. <laughs> oh, what a great moment to discover that. And it's funny because John really doesn't remember that story. And when I interviewed him and, and Lisa together on Talkback, he was like, wow, well, thanks for providing an opportunity where Steve and I could kind of come up with this sketch comedy. <laughs> Yeah, that is funny. Well, now, you are a big advocate for inclusion, and I know we discussed it a little bit earlier, but to that effort, what specific things are happening in your world or what kinds of organizations are helping that artist from being excluded from that American landscape of storytelling that you talked about? Well, thank you for asking. Well, so I served for 28 years on the Council of Actors' Equity, and 22 years of that time was the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Committee. So we did a lot of work together on the actor side. And then at the Guild, I initiated the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Access Committee. Through that, we worked on creating an inclusion rider for that writers can use if they choose to, that gives them the language to ask for various things in their contracts that have to do with parity and inclusion on their team. And then also, I am a founding member of an organization called APAC, the Asian American Performers Action Coalition, which started 11, 12 years ago to fight for Asian American representation in New York City stages. I'm really proud that we were awarded the Tony Award honor for excellence in the theater in 2022 for our work. This is news, hasn't been announced publicly yet, but is not a secret. The Dramatist Guild Foundation has just started 
a two-year fellowship called the Catalyst for Change Fellowship, in which they are supporting 10 of us who applied with various ideas and projects. Through that, I've received that, and I'm creating the Asian American Theater Artists Collective, which will be across all disciplines. I like to describe it as part community incubator, part living database, and part networking extravaganza. Basically, the goal being creating something that is resource to for us and to others so that we can stop the conversation of people saying, I can't hire you because either you don't exist or I don't know where to find you. This is a two-year effort that I'm just embarking on now that I hope will make some change, move the needle a little bit in another way. It's, I keep saying it's the same objectives, but different obstacles that we are running up against all the time. So I keep, for better or worse, uh, my pathological optimism that has hope for the future keeps coming up with different strategies to address these issues. I wish you great success in those efforts. And uh, we've had a number of your peers on that I think speak the same language or passionate about that. I know we had Leah Chang on and she great photographer that helps amplify the stories. And Jason Ma, we mentioned earlier, which I, was really a pleasure to get to know him and to talk about the success his other musicals were making in, in that storytelling. So I'm happy to be just a small part of sending the word out uh, in any way that I Thank can. Thank you so much. I peeked at Spotify to see if you had music on Spotify. Yeah, not very much, but a little. Yeah. You no, know, I just saw one song. And is that a new song? It looked like it was 2023. It's a new song that I wrote actually for A Little More Blue. My husband, actually, my husband, Bruce Johnson, is working on a, a large album right now. And things are being released in spurts until the whole album will be released. And so partially that Spotify effort was to see oh, let's see how it works. And this song is something, it's called Surfing the Line, something that I wanted to share message-wise anyway. So that's why there's only one song out there. Although I have been thinking about perhaps doing a recording of other songs that I've written at, at some point. Yeah. All right. I just wasn't sure if you were hiding behind a little wall there. You know, no. like, <laughs> so if they want to hear Surfing the Line, it is available on Spotify. Thank you. And I will send them to your website to find out more. Christine Toy Johnson, exactly as it sounds, dot com. Yes, thank you. I wish you continued success on your writing and all of this exciting development that's going on with the workshops. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing some insight and inspiration with us today. Well, I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun. Bye for now.